Hello. Welcome to Science Journal, an audio journal production presenting articles of interest from science magazines, newspapers, and online resources on topics such as technology, health, and the environment. This program is supported in part by Cognex and the UMass Medical School. Today, I'll be sharing stories about Shimmying Schnoz, Elephant-Nosed Fish Sees by Doing an Electric Boogie. Then, Lost Worlds of the Dinosaurs, Tiny Fossils Bring Ancient Ecosystems to Life. And then, Environmental Protection Does Not Kill Jobs. On to Articles in Scientific American from 50, 100, and 150 years ago. And finally, AI trained on a baby's experiences yields clues to how we learn language. I'm Doug Johnson. I'm always interested in how animals perceive the world around them. So I thought this short article from Scientific America was pretty interesting. It's titled, Shimmying Schnoz, Elephant-Nosed Fish, Quote, Sees by Doing an Electric Boogie. It was written by Elizabeth Ann Brown. The elephant-nosed fish wouldn't get very far on eyesight alone in the murky rivers of western and central Africa that it calls home. Instead, it relies on a sense called electrolocation. An organ on its tail emits a weak electric field that pulses outward from its body. Receptors on its skin detect distortions to the field caused by objects or creatures nearby, creating a two-dimensional, quote, electric image of the object being detected, like a shadow cast on the fish's skin. But how does the foot-long fish use that 2D map to perceive a 3D world? New findings published in Animal Behavior suggest this creature does a little aquatic dance, allowing it to perceive objects from slightly different angles that, when stacked together, help distinguish 3D objects. Sarah Skeels, an animal cognition and behavior researcher at the University of Oxford, has been thoroughly charmed by the elephant-nosed fish and its trunk-like nose, which is chock-full of electroreceptors. The fish is known for making odd movements, such as swiveling its nose or shaking its electrically charged tail when it encounters unfamiliar objects. It sometimes even, quote, moonwalks with backward paddling that's very unusual in fish, Skeels says. Skeels suspects these motions might help the elephant nose perceive its surroundings. To test the idea, she trained six Peters elephant nose fish to associate a sausage-shaped block of aluminum with the reward of tasty bloodworms. When she presented the fish with a choice of two objects behind mesh doors, one object shaped like a sausage, the other like a cube or sphere, after training, the fish quickly picked the door with the sausage shape almost 94% of the time. Then Skeels began to shrink the space with mesh barriers so the fish had less room to shimmy, shake, and throw it back. With a narrowed dance floor, the fish's accuracy dipped to 71%, and they took longer to reach a decision. There was, quote, a level of hesitancy you don't see in the other trials, Skeels says. The experiment was, quote, very cleverly designed, says Stefan Mucha, 
who studies weekly electric fish at the Humboldt University of Berlin. He says it reveals a small but meaningful piece of how the fish integrate electrical information into a usable map, a complex process that has inspired underwater cameras and computer algorithms. Quote, it's so complex what they do that we can't really model it with our greatest computers, Mucha says, but it's just a small fish. I'm always a sucker for articles about dinosaurs, so here's a recent article from Scientific American titled Lost Worlds of the Dinosaurs, Tiny Fossils Bring Ancient Ecosystems to Life. It was written by the husband-wife team of Christina Rogers and Raymond Rogers, who are professors at the McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Enter the fossil gallery of a natural history museum, and you're likely to encounter spectacular skeletons of some of the most manifestly awesome creatures ever to have walked our planet. Dinosaurs, from towering sauropods and fearsome Tyrannosaurus, to tank-like ankylosaurs and horned ceratopsians, dinosaurs dominate our conceptions of the past. But to understand these animals and their world, scientists must look beyond the dazzling remains of Apatosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, and other icons to tiny fossils that appear, at first glance, distinctly unimpressive. You won't see these humble microfossils on public display but they provide some of the best clues we have into the lives and times of our favorite prehistoric beasts. For the past three decades, we have been conducting expeditions to recover such fossils in the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, a 149-mile expanse of astoundingly beautiful badlands in central Montana. Here, in the very place where scientists got their first look at North America's dinosaurs starting in the 1800s, our team has discovered a wealth of fossils from an extraordinary array of previously unknown organisms that lived alongside those better-known dinosaurs. These fossils are a record of an ecosystem that flourished 10 million years before a killer asteroid slammed into Earth. We have been targeting special fossil assemblages called vertebrate microfossil bone beds, or VMBs. These sites preserve thousands of small, hard parts of a diversity of animals, ranging from traces of microscopic parasites to the scales of minnows to bits of much bigger frogs, turtles, birds, mammals, crocodiles, and dinosaurs. We find the fossils both in the field and in the laboratory, where we use dissecting microscopes to search through sediment for the minuscule remains. These well-preserved fossils are providing some of the highest resolution pictures yet of a dinosaur ecosystem. They reveal the often overlooked creatures that scurried and swam around the feet of dinosaurs, buzzing annoyingly in their ears and maybe even preying on their young and scavenged their dead. With them in the mix, the ancient world springs to life. The two of us bring very different perspectives to studying VMBs. Christy works to understand the biology of the biggest dinosaurs of all time, the long-necked quadrupedal plant-eaters called sauropods. These giants have captivated her for as long as she can remember. 
Christy has been happiest toiling in a sun-drenched quarry, slowly excavating limb bones far bigger than she is. Ray, in contrast, is a geologist who works in the rocks to decipher how bone beds, accumulations of skeletons, form and what they reveal about the environments of an organism's life and death. Luckily for us, in addition to being married, we are each other's closest scientific collaborators. Long before we joined forces, Ray had been busy working in fossil deposits that were the antithesis of the ones Christie was focusing on. Rather than spending an entire field season excavating a single enormous skeleton, Ray might collect thousands of fossils in a few hours in the VMBs. This achievement sounds amazing, but most of the fossils from the VMBs are so small that you could sneeze and blow them off your fingertips. With her enduring love of digging up the biggest of the big, Christy was a reluctant convert to the study of VMBs. But looking at the tiny remains with handheld lenses and microscopes revealed perfectly preserved bones of a menagerie of creatures that lived in the shadows of her giants. Microfossils from the VMBs, Christy realized, have outsized power when it comes to exposing the workings of dinosaur ecosystems. Through our work in the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, or the Breaks as it is known, we've been able to reconstruct one such ecosystem in remarkable detail. It's a scene many decades in the making. In 1855, a 26-year-old explorer and naturalist named Ferdinand Hayden was the first to investigate the Breaks geologically. For a few short days, he traversed the roughly 76-million-year-old outcrops there. His foray into these fossil-rich rocks yielded the first scientific collection of dinosaur bones and teeth discovered in all of North America. But Hayden didn't just collect dinosaur remains. From what we would now recognize as a classic VMB, he also picked up handful of bones and teeth from fish, turtles, and crocodiles. With his first major find, Hayden not only populated our view of prehistoric North America with a bunch of dinosaurs, but also began to reveal an ancient ecosystem. For more than 30 years, we, along with our gangs of undergraduate students, have followed in Hayden's footsteps. We do it old school, canoeing and hiking through the Badlands and braving the heat, mud, bugs, and snakes as we search for remnants of animals that lived in the Cretaceous period. Our work has produced tens of thousands of bones and teeth of dinosaurs and the animals that lived alongside them. We've learned how these special fossil assemblages form, which creatures these fossils represent, and some of what they can teach us about the complex Cretaceous world that dinosaurs made famous. At the heart of the breaks lies the Missouri River, the landscaped architect responsible for carrying the dramatic, quote, break in the undulating plains that gives the area its name. Rocky exposures soar many hundreds of feet above the river valley. These striated layers of sandstone, mudstone, and coal make up the Judith River formation. Marine sandstones and shales found near the bottom and top of the formation indicate that the sea was never far away in the Cretaceous. 
Back then, Judith River sediments were accumulating near the coastline of a shallow inland sea known as the Western Interior Seaway. The seaway, which stretched from the Arctic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico and east through what is now Hudson Bay, essentially divided North America into three parts. In the Cretaceous, the sea's shoreline was just a few miles to the east of where we work now making our field area in the breaks beachfront property. Ancient rivers flowed from the nascent Rocky Mountains toward the western interior seaway. Swampy floodplains surrounded these Cretaceous rivers. It was an environment analogous to Louisiana's Atchafalaya Basin or the Florida Everglades. Such places offer the perfect conditions for producing an exceptional fossil record. Warm, wet environments have an abundance of food and water that can support many different plants and animals. When these organisms died in what is now the breaks, their remains accumulated slowly and steadily in the quiet lakes and wetlands, eventually getting covered in fine-grained mud. The sediment chemistry in these swampy systems is similarly favorable to long-term preservation. Instead of dissolving delicate bones, teeth, and shells, the chemical conditions promoted fossilization, basically transforming these body parts into stone. Geological forces have also played a part in preserving these organisms for posterity. The entire region was tectonically active, part of a huge geological basin that formed as nearby rising mountains pushed down on Earth's crust. This basin allowed the Judith River formation sediments and the fossils they preserved to accumulate instead of being eroded away into the sea. The erosion that this region is now experiencing makes it possible for us to find the fossils in the rocks. Although parts of the Judith River formation preserve big, beautiful dinosaur skeletons, the area we target deep within the river valley are a little different. These sites, the VMBs, preserve a multitude of bones, teeth, and other bits just a fraction of an inch in size, from organisms ranging from dinosaurs to mollusks. Scholars have long debated how VMBs form. One of the first hypotheses suggested that the fossils preserved in VMBs had collectively passed through the digestive tracts of ancient carnivores and that the sites represented concentrations of feces. Although scatological assemblages do exist in the fossil record, this explanation cannot, on its own, account for the quality of preservation and the geological content of the Judith River VMBs. Another hypothesis held that VMBs form when the flow of a river picks up and carries small, hard parts from an array of animals and deposits them in a single spot but the geological and forensic data we have collected in the Judith River formations are largely inconsistent with this transport-based scenario. Along with our collaborator, Matthew Carano, dinosaur curator at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History, we've spent lots of time dissecting the fine-scale details of more than 20 Judith River Formation VMBs and developed a new model for how these sites develop. Our data indicates that these VMBs accumulated within ponds and lakes. 
fine-grained sediments rained down on the remains of animals that lived and died in and around these long-lived aquatic ecosystems. Over time, tough skeletal remains collected on the bottom and formed fossil deposits. As bottom-dwelling organisms burrowed through the mud, scavenged carcasses, and churned up sediments in the course of their daily routines, individual skeletons broke and their elements disappeared. This scenario explains why VMBs yield skeletal fragments that are generally disarticulated and why the body parts that persist tend to be particularly durable and robust. Think teeth, small bones, and scales. When you study VMBs, you can't connect a thigh bone to a knee bone like you can when you find a lone dinosaur skeleton. But VMBs tell us much more than a single large skeleton can because they preserve communities. Where the pavement ends, the fun begins. That's the slogan printed on the beer cozies at our local bar in the town of Winifred, Montana, population 200, more or less. There is no better description of this little prairie oasis. Winifred is the last stop in civilization before we leave the pavement for dirt tracks and river currents. We're headed to an area where few people travel, which is just the way we like it. For us, as it was for Hayden, the best ways to get to the farthest and most interesting reaches of the breaks are by boat and our foot. Once we leave the pavement behind in Winifred, the tracks wind down to the river, where the heat radiates off the rock walls of the valley. It's usually at least 10 degrees hotter on the river than it is up in Winifred. The air is still and the brakes are silent, apart from the occasional clacking and snapping of wings as grasshoppers launch themselves skyward. Only a few roads cut through this territory. One of them leads to Stafford-McClelland Ferry Terminal, where overhead cables guide a platform ferry across the Missouri River. It's one of the only places to cross the river for miles, and it often serves as the launch point for our flotilla of canoes. Once we start our journey, chances are slim that we'll see any other humans until we go ashore farther downstream. We're loaded to the gunwales with the gear we'll need for the 50-mile paddle, including as much water as we can carry, all our food, tents, and collecting supplies, including several five-gallon buckets, mostly for collecting fossil-bearing sediment. At least one will serve as our toilet for the next several days. The only running water on our journey will be the silty river. Baths will be dunks that require wading through the sticky, knee-deep mud. They cool us off, but we usually end up dirtier than before. The badlands hug the river around us, creating a corridor of rock with nothing but sky overhead. Bald eagles nest in stands of cottonwoods that line the banks, and ospreys scan the river ahead of us in search of a meal. Beavers surface and slap their tails in warning, the sound echoing off the hillsides and reverberating downstream. Every now and then, we can discern the silhouettes of huge catfish and carp just under the murky surface, and occasionally a soft-shelled turtle pokes its pointed head up mid-river to check us out. In the afternoon stillness, the sun beats down, heating our aluminum canoes and our shoulders. We stick our feet overboard to cool down. 
We swat away mosquitoes and no seams. Gnats that love to bite ears, eyelids, and hairlines. If the wind is up, we might tie the canoes to one another with bungee cords and raft together, holding up a tarp as a makeshift sail and speeding away downstream. Late in the afternoon, we'll find a spot in the welcoming shade of the cottonwoods and set up camp. We wake with the sun and hike out into the hills, looking out for rattlers as we dodge spiky yucca and cactus and weave our way through stands of aromatic sagebrush. We occasionally spook a bighorn sheep resting in the shadows or get spooked ourselves as another sheep trots along the highest cliffs above us. Our eyes are trained on the ground and nearby slopes as we prospect for VMBs. It might seem impossible to find such small fossils in this vast landscape, but there are a few clues to guide us. We search for just the right kind of sedimentary rock, dark gray and brown mudstone, maybe with some coal black fossilized plants that indicate a swampy environment, and lighter gray sandstones bearing angled patterns that reflect ancient currents. We also look for exposures that sparkle in the sun. The sparkle comes from fragments of fossilized clams and snails that lived and died in Cretaceous ponds and lakes. VMBs are often found within these glittering layers of rock. When someone spots a few broken fragments of fossils that have weathered out from a rock layer somewhere upslope, we'll track those bits and pieces back to their source, slowly crawling up the incline on our hands and knees, noses to the ground, eyes scanning for the tiny fossils emerging from the eroding rocks. Eventually, we'll hit the layer where the fossils are concentrated. We can spend an entire day or more on a single small hill, using an ice pick or a pocket knife to help gently nudge fossils from the soft rock of the VMB. We collect everything that we can see, carefully adding our fossils to sample bags and vials. After we've scoured the surface, it's time to bring in the rock hammers, hoe picks, and shovels. We excavate blocks of the bone bed and load them into our five-gallon buckets and giant sample bags. Once we're back at our college lab, we load the fossil-bearing sediment into a contraption we call, quote, the dunker. This automated device washes the bone bed sediments through stacked sieves with different mesh sizes. We place the sediment chunks into one sieve that captures any fossils and bits of rock larger than about 0.08 inch into size, but allows smaller pieces through. Below this sieve is a fine mesh sieve that captures fossil bits down to 0.02 inch in size, smaller than a pinhead. After a few hours in the dunker, most sediment clumps break down and the sediment washes away, leaving behind a residue of bones, teeth, shells, and other fossils in the sieves. With the fossils recovered, we move to microscopes. Our students have spent hundreds of hours focusing on the fossils retrieved after sieving. They use super fine paintbrushes with bristles thinned to just a few hairs to sort through the fossil concentrates. It is remarkable what the VMB world looks like under magnification. What the naked eye perceives as mere specks of black resolves into perfect little teeth, jaws, limb bones, and vertebrae. The diversity of the Judith River formation comes to life.
Let us introduce you to the cast of characters we have met in the VMBs. We begin in the terrestrial realm, where the stars of the Cretaceous, the dinosaurs, lived. Dinosaurs had teeth that were replaced throughout life, and these teeth are some of the most common and easily identified fossils in our collections. Some of the dinosaur teeth in our VMBs belong to armored ankylosaurs such as those in the Zool genus and dome-headed pachycephalosaurs such as Stegoceras. By far the most abundant dinosaur teeth in our samples comes from herbivorous dinosaurs with rows of teeth that formed a grinding surface functionally similar to the molars of mammals. Usually we find only ground-down fragments of these teeth, so identifying particular species can be tough, but we've recovered teeth from duck-billed hadrosaurian dinosaurs including Brachylophosaurus and from horned and frilled ceratopsians such as Speclepeus. Our sites have also yielded traces of carnivorous dinosaurs, which were the top predators in this late Cretaceous ecosystem. Sharp, serrated teeth document the presence of Tyrannosaurus rex's cousin, Despletosaurus, and the small, feathered theropod, Truodon. We've also found claws and vertebrae from the toothless, ostrich-like theropod, Ornithomimus. Dinosaurs ruled the skies of the Judith River ecosystem, too, in the form of birds. Small, fragile animals typically don't get preserved very well, but many early birds had teeth, which are durable enough to survive in VMBs. Like birds, mammals are another elusive group in the late Cretaceous fossil record, but we know they made their way to the Judith River formation lakes and ponds because we occasionally find teeth from little furballs such as Alphodon, which was similar to living opossums. These mammals may have fallen prey to some of the many aquatic reptiles that lived in and around the ancient lakes here. Crocodiles and alligators, big and small, hunted the open waters and the shorelines. Their teeth, vertebrae, and bony plates of armor are among the most common VMB fossils. One unusual creature in the lineup is Champsosaurus. This long-snouted, sharp-toothed animal looked somewhat like today's gharial a fish-eating crocodilian that ambushes its prey. The spool-like vertebrae and broad ribs of Champsosaurus turn up frequently at our sites, signaling that it was a prominent player in the Judith River Formation's ecosystem. As you might expect, the 76-million-year-old water world fish were abundant. Our collections include thousands of vertebrae, teeth, and scales representing both large fish and minnows. These fish would have schooled in the Judith River Formation lakes, making the water shimmer with their collective movement. Freshwater sharks also swam in these waters, as did Mylodaphus, a guitar fish-like creature with flat, diamond-shaped teeth perfect for crushing small crustaceans and mollusks. Ferocious garfish, Lepisostis, were also numerous. Their scales help us document a fascinating story of ecological interaction among species in the Judith River Formation. The bodies of gars are protected by an armor of interlocking scales covered in a special type of enamel-like tissue called ganoine. 
When crocodiles ingest gars, the acids in their harsh digestive systems strip away the outer layer of ganoin on the fish scales, leaving the scales corroded. We can see from the condition of the gar scales in the VMBs that crocs were eating gars back then, just as they do now. These watery ecosystems harbored a variety of amphibians, too. Intriguingly, many of the minute amphibian limb elements and ribs that we recover from our sieves are covered in even tinier tooth marks. These traces were made when a garfish, a baby crocodile, or even a small theropod dinosaur took a bite, scraping its teeth along bone as it did. Amphibians were not the only creatures that moved between water and land in this ecosystem. Turtles also spent time both in the lake and on terra firma. We found bony plates from turtle shells with distinctive ornamentation patterns characteristic of several soft-shelled turtle species, as well as snapping turtles. Lizards made a home here, too. We have confirmed the presence of several different lizard groups, from close relatives of living iguanas to long-tailed skink-like forms to heavily armored insect-eating species. We also find fossil eggshells in our VMBs. When discovered in isolation, eggs and eggshells can be tricky to link to a particular species. For this reason, there is a special classification system for eggshells called ootaxonomy. We begin by describing the outer and inner surfaces of the shell, noting the color and texture, as well as the distribution of the pores that allow gas exchange with the developing embryo. Then we look at thin sections of the shell under a microscope to see its crystalline structure. In addition, we can study the chemistry of the eggshells for clues to what types of organisms might have laid these eggs. By assessing fossil eggshells in this way, we have been able to establish that theropod and duck-billed dinosaurs, as well as a variety of crocodiles and turtles, nested in the lush lowland environments preserved within the Judith River Formation. Every once in a while, just when our vision starts to blur after hours of looking at VMB residues through a microscope, we spot something new that isn't a recognizable bone, tooth, or other body part. Sometimes these enigmatic remains turn out to be trace fossils, records of an animal's activity, but not part of the animal itself. These fossils, which can be tooth marks like those seen on the amphibian bones, footprints or feces, among other traces, all signal the presence and behaviors of creatures that we might not detect otherwise. Small, donut-like structures known as gastroliths or stomach stones are one type of trace fossil that occurs in our samples. They show that crayfish lived in the lakes, ponds, rivers, and streams of the breaks back in the Cretaceous. In modern crayfish, gastroliths serve to store calcium carbonate, an essential component of their exoskeletons. When crayfish grow, they must molt their old exoskeleton and build a new, bigger one. Rather than discarding the old armor entirely, they conserve its precious calcium carbonate by sequestering it in gastroliths until they can redeploy it. The gastroliths we find in the Judith River Formation hint that Cretaceous crayfish, like their modern counterparts, 
were experts at reducing, reusing, and recycling. Perhaps the most mysterious trace fossils in our VMBs are igloo-shaped bumps that we frequently find on fragments of clamshells. We puzzled over these peculiar features for years before we finally realized that they are identical to the modern-day structures that form when parasitic flatworms infest clams. The clams build the igloos as an act of self-defense, attempting to contain the invading parasite in a mineralized chamber. We have every reason to believe our Cretaceous clams were doing the same thing to protect themselves. Parasites tend to have small, squishy bodies, characteristics that do not bode well for fossilization. As a result, scientists usually can't include these ecologically important animals in their reconstructions of fossil food webs. The Judith River VMB clamshell igloos not only confirm the presence of flatworms in this ecosystem, but also push back the oldest known occurrence of this type of parasitic interaction between flatworm and clam from just 6,000 or so years ago to 76 million years ago. Modern-day flatworm parasites have complex life cycles involving multiple host species. Clams serve as just one host in the flatworm life cycle, with clam-eating shorebirds often serving as the ultimate host. Maybe in the Cretaceous period, flatworms created lines of ecological connection between organisms as different as clams and dinosaurs. The unassuming fossils of the Judith River Formation VMBs have given us amazing insights into this vibrant, lost world of the dinosaurs, more than we ever could have imagined possible. Yet we know there is still so much more to learn. Discoveries like the clamshell igloos underscore what Ferdinand Hayden figured out on his trail-blazing journey through the breaks back in 1855. No fossil is too small or too obscure to reveal amazing, unexpected details about ancient ecosystems. Here's an encouraging article about a controversial subject, also from Scientific American. It's titled, Environmental Protection Does Not Kill Jobs. The argument that we must choose between saving nature and strengthening the economy is a false dichotomy. This was written by Naomi Oreskes. One of the most damaging logical fallacies is the, quote, fallacy of the excluded middle, also known as a false dichotomy or false binary. The ploy of presenting a problem as either or, with no other choices and no middle ground. It's often used to make people reject something they want by persuading them they can't have it unless they give up something else they want even more. An example is the supposed trade-off between jobs and the environment. Since 1984, the Gallup polling group has been asking the following question, quote, With which one of these statements about the environment and the economy do you most agree? Protection of the environment should be given priority, even at the risk of curbing economic growth, or economic growth should be given priority, even if the environment suffers to some extent. Anti-environmental forces exploit this dichotomy. For example, while on the campaign trail during the United Auto Workers strike last fall, Donald Trump said, quote, You can be loyal to American labor, or you can be loyal to the environmental lunatics, but you can't really be loyal to both. 
It's one or the other. Most Americans are not lunatics, but they care a lot about the environment. And there is obvious public interest in fresh air, clean water, and beautiful places to walk and rest. So anti-environmental politicians and polluting industries rely on a dichotomous framing to claim that in trashing environmental protection, they are protecting something more valuable, jobs. In fact, numerous studies show that protecting the environment is not bad for the economy. In the 1980s, soon after landmark federal statutes such as the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts were passed, some studies suggested that the economic slowdown in that decade was caused by environmental legislation. But better, larger, and longer-term studies completed since then have refuted that claim. For example, one study found that productivity at stringently regulated oil refineries in the heavily controlled Los Angeles Air Basin increased during the study period, 1987 to 1992, whereas refinery productivity decreased in other regions. A recent review of peer-reviewed literature concluded that, quote, environmental regulations have had very little effect on employment in the regulated industry. In other words, environmental protection does not kill jobs. What is more, many environmentally destructive jobs are notoriously short-lived. Mineral extraction is famously associated with boom-and-bust economics, think gold rush, and several studies have shown that the fracking boom of the early 2000s has already gone bust. In his 2021 book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town, Colin Jeromack reports that the actual number of jobs that were created by the industry was often far less than claimed, and many of them proved ephemeral. The multi-state shale research collaborative found that, quote, firms with an economic interest in the expansion of drilling and their allies systematically exaggerated its impact on employment. For instance, in 2012, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce claimed that fracking in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia had created more than 300,000 new jobs. But the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry counted only about 18,000 in core industries and about 5,600 in ancillary industries, and according to nonprofit Ohio River Valley Institute, little of the income they generated stayed in local communities. In contrast, environmental restoration creates jobs in projects that typically employ local laborers, use mostly local materials, and, because they support tourism and recreation, often yield durable benefits. Environmental protection is also good for public health which in turn is good for the economy, because sick people generally can't work well and sometimes can't work at all. A study published in the journal Science last November estimated that nearly half a million deaths in the U.S. could be attributed to fine particulate air pollutants from coal-fired power plants between 1999 and 2020. It's not just that being exposed to toxic chemicals and polluted air and water is bad, something we've known for centuries, but also that time spent in nature is good. 
Although the details can be hard to pinpoint, various studies and reviews have documented positive effects of a clean and green environment, particularly on mental health, cognition, and blood pressure. One of the unintended negative consequences of COVID-19 lockdowns for some people might have been the adverse effect of being stuck indoors. A review study published in 2022 found that exposure to nature during the COVID pandemic was associated with lower levels of depression, anxiety, and stress with greater happiness and life satisfaction. Nature exposure was also, quote, correlated with less physical inactivity and fewer sleep disturbances. During lockdowns, many people spent more time than usual outdoors. Recovery and resilience in future public health crises, the authors of this review concluded, might be improved with nature-based infrastructure, interventions, designs, and governance. So next time that you hear someone assert that it's either the economy or the environment, don't believe it. And let's hope that the good folks at Gallup will realize that it's time to ditch this damaging false dichotomy. Here's one of my favorite sections from Scientific American. It's titled, Articles in Scientific American from 50, 100, and 150 years ago. From 1974, or 50 years ago, telescope to probe Hubble constant. Quote, NASA is planning a 120-inch reflecting telescope to be launched in the early 1980s. The Large Space Telescope will probably be the first large payload put into orbit by the space shuttle. Astronomers will be able to map the recessional velocities of galaxies to see if there are any irregularities in the Hubble expansion of the universe that could be evidence for a deacceleration or expansion. Moreover, because of its ability to probe the universe to magnitudes 100 times fainter than can be reached from the ground, the telescope should reveal many new objects in other galaxies. In 1969, the National Academy of Sciences approved the Large Space Telescope Project. The instrument was later renamed the Hubble Space Telescope and was launched in 1990. Also from 1974, no growth economy? Two extreme positions have been established in the current debate on economic growth. Ronald C. Ridker of Resources for the Future suggests that both of them are wrong. Indeed, they border on the irresponsible. The pro-growth school holds that material economic growth is the primary social goal, taking precedence over equity and measures to cope with the social and environmental costs of growth. The no-growth school seems to hold that social problems will disappear if growth ends. Quote, the relevant question, Ridker says, is not whether to grow or not to grow, but how to channel and redirect economic output in ways that will better serve humanity's needs. Next, from 1924, or 100 years ago, Curious Dinosaur Eggs Found a few months ago, a cablegram from China announced perhaps the most curious find ever made in exploration, a nest of dinosaur eggs, the first dinosaur eggs ever seen by a human being. Altogether, 25 fossilized eggs were taken out. 
examinations show that there were a number of species and several eggs that had been broken in half, there could be plainly detected the delicate bone of the embryos. Never before in science has it been possible to study paleoembryology. Baby dinosaurs that had probably been hatched only a few weeks and others in all stages of growth, up to the adults 10 feet long, were also discovered as fossil remains. Also from 1924, element 72, hafnium. The elements arranged in the order of atomic number showed a break after number 71, lutetium, the last in the known series of rare earths. Number 72 was lacking. Dirk Koster and George de Hevesy, working in Copenhagen, deduced that the unknown element would probably show great resemblance to element number 40, zirconium. The investigators examined the X-ray spectra of zirconium minerals and found, in addition to the characteristic lines of the element, lines of another unknown element in the position where the lines of number 72 should be. The two scientists succeeded in separating the new element and naming it in honor of Copenhagen. From 1874, or 150 years ago, railroad time set by the stars. The extent of the U.S. forbids the adoption of one mean time for railroad use, found so convenient in Europe. It is therefore the practice on our railroads to run by Portland time, New York time, Altoona time, or by the mean time of some other center of railroad traffic. The Pennsylvania Railroad and some of its dependencies, extending from New York to St. Louis, use Pittsburgh time, which is transmitted by electricity from the Allegheny Observatory, an astronomical clock of the best construction. It is regulated by a telescope, which shows its return every 24 hours to the point of observation of a fixed star, so that the Earth itself becomes the regulating clock of the observatory. Also from 1874, lands unknown. There is yet one seventeenth part of the globe of which we know nothing except by conjecture. The region which surrounds the South Pole, the Antarctic, covers an area of seven million square miles. The Arctic measures nearly three million. The unexplored portion of Africa may be at least one million. The unknown part of Australia is certainly more than two-thirds of that. Of the East Indian archipelago, Borneo is considered the second largest island on the globe. A strip along the coast of about 100 miles deep represents what we know of it. The interior remains unknown. So also of thousands of minute islands. And finally, here's an interesting article from one of my favorite science writers for the Washington Post. It's titled, AI Trained on a Baby's Experiences Yields Clues on How We Learn Language. For a year and a half, a baby named Sam wore a head cam in weekly sessions that captured his world. A spoon zooming toward his mouth, a caregiver squealing wee as he whizzed down an orange slide, or a cat grooming itself. Now scientists have fed those sights and sounds to a relatively simple AI program to probe one of the most profound questions in cognitive science, how do children learn language? In a paper published Thursday in the journal Science, researchers at New York University report that AI 
given just a tiny fraction of the fragmented experiences of one child, can begin to discern order in the pixels, learning that there is something called a crib, stairs, or a puzzle, and matching those words correctly with their images. The tool the researchers used is not an AI that learns just like a child, but the research shows that AI can pick up some basic elements of language from the sensory input of a single child's experience, even without pre-existing knowledge of grammar or other social abilities. It's one piece of a much larger quest to eventually build an AI that mimics a baby's mind a holy grail of cognitive science that could help researchers understand our own development and lead to AI that humans could teach new skills in a more intuitive way. Chatbots, also known as large language models, demonstrated that AI trained on massive amounts of text can produce a valuable conversation partner with the dazzling mastery of language. But many cognitive scientists contend that this verbal feat falls short of actual human thinking. Babies are the opposite of a chatbot, learning words not by rapidly digesting all the world's texts, but from being in the world itself, through sensory input and play. By our calculations, it would take a child 100,000 years of listening to spoken words to reach the word count of the training set for chatbots, said Brendan Lake, a computational cognitive scientist at NYU, who led the study. Quote, I was also skeptical that those chatbot models would shine a lot of light on human learning and development. Linguists, philosophers, cognitive scientists, and increasingly AI developers have all been puzzling over how humans learn language. For years, scientists have been trying to understand how children's minds take shape through carefully controlled experiments. Many involve toys or puppets that allow researchers to probe when various cognitive skills come online. They've shown that 16-month-old babies can deploy statistical reasoning to determine whether a noisemaker is broken and that babies as young as five months know that an object still exists even when they can't see it, a key developmental milestone called object permanence. In addition, some individual babies have been closely followed over time. Deb Roy, a scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, set up overhead cameras in all the rooms of his house in 2005 and recorded his son's linguistic development, providing a massive trove of data that chronicled the acquisition and evolution of words. That work suggested it was not how many times a word was repeated that predicted whether Roy's son learned it early, but whether it was uttered in an unusual spot in the house, a surprising time, or in a distinctive linguistic context. The innovative use of head cams has given researchers an even more intimate view of early childhood. Since 2013, several families have contributed to the SAYCAM database, a collection of audiovisual recordings from individual babies and toddlers over a crucial period of cognitive development between 6 and 32 months. Families of the babies, who were identified only by first name, put cameras mounted on headbands on their children for about two hours a week. 
scientists can apply for access to the data, which provides a unique window into each child's world over time and is intended to be a resource for researchers across a variety of fields. Sam, whose identity is private, is now 11 years old, but the recordings of his early life in Australia provided Lake and his colleagues with 600,000 video frames paired with 37,500 transcribed words of training data for their AI project. They trained their relatively simple neural network on data captured when Sam was between the ages of six months and two years. The AI, they found, learned to match basic nouns and images with similar accuracy to AI trained on 400 million images with captions from the web. The results weighed into, but don't solve, a long-running debate in science about the basic cognitive skills humans need built into their brains to learn language. There are various theories of how humans learn language. High-profile linguist Noam Chomsky proposed the idea of a built-in innate language ability. Other experts think we need social or inductive reasoning skills for language to emerge. The new study suggests that some language learning can occur in the absence of specialized cognitive machinery. Relatively simple associative learning, see ball, hear ball, can teach an AI to make matches when it comes to simple nouns and images. There's not anything inbuilt into the network giving the model clues about language or how language ought to be structured, said study co-author Y. Keen Vong, a research scientist at NYU. The researchers don't have comparable data on how a two-year-old would perform on the tasks the AI faced, but they said that the AI's abilities fall short of those of a small child. For instance, they could track where the AI was focused when prompted with various words, and found that, while it was spot on for some words, such as car or ball, it was looking in the wrong area when prompted with cat. I want to find out the minimal ingredients needed to build a model that can learn more like a child does. This is a step, Lake said. The AI picked up its vocabulary of objects from being exposed to 1% of Sam's waking hours, 61 hours of footage accumulated over a year and a half. What intrigued outside scientists about the study was both how far the AI got based on that and how far it still had to go to recapitulate human learning. Quote, it's really important and new to be applying these methods to this kind of data source, which is the data from a single child's experience, both visual and auditory, said Joshua Tenenbaum, a computational cognitive scientist at MIT, who was not involved in the work. What I would add is there are still some things it's harder to conclude from the paper exactly. What this tells us about how children actually learn words is less clear. Michael Tomasello, a development and comparative psychologist at Duke University, said that the AI model might reflect how a dog or a parrot can learn words. Experiments show that some dogs can learn more than 100 words for common objects or stuffed animals. But, he pointed out, it remains unclear how this AI would take sensory input and glean verbs, prepositions, or social expressions. It could learn that a recurrent visual pattern is dull, but how does it learn that that very same object is also a toy? 
How does it learn this or that or it or thing? Tomasello wrote in an email. The AI model trained on the child's experience, he noted, was able to identify things that can be seen, and that's just a small part of the language that children hear and learn. He proposed an alternative model where instead of simply associating images with sound, an AI would need to make inferences about the intention of communication to learn language. Lake is starting to train AI models on video instead of still frames to see if they can successfully expand their vocabulary into verbs and abstract words. There will soon be an additional stream of data to work from, because Lake is collecting data from his young daughter. But he acknowledges the ways the AI learns deviate from children's learning, even for simple words. The AI was really great at learning to identify sand, for example, but had trouble with hands, which means his progress probably does not reflect most children's grasp of their environment. Quote, sand was too easy, hand was too hard, Lake said, and the model doesn't know that milk and pears taste good. You have been listening to Science Journal, a production of Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. If you would like a hard copy of our program schedule, either in large print or braille, please call 508-797-1117. Archived editions of this program are available on our website, audiojournal.org, or go to the Audio Journal app on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. If you have an idea for a topic to explore, please contact Audio Journal at 508-797-1117 or email info at audiojournal.org. I'm Doug Johnson. Thank you for listening. You are listening to Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. This is Bird Note. In some parts of North America, sandhill cranes are common as ants at a picnic. The largest population breeds in Canada and Alaska. Afterward, they gather in the thousands at southern wintering grounds, like this flock in New Mexico. In New England, on the other hand, they've been almost as rare as pterodactyls, until relatively recently. Small numbers of sandhill cranes now appear throughout the region. At first, birders couldn't believe their eyes. But sandhill cranes are unmistakable. They stand almost four feet tall, with a wingspan around six feet. Their plumage is gray, with a brilliant red forehead. When a sandhill crane chick hatched in Maine in 2000, it was evident the New England birds were not just strays. Cranes now breed in several parts of New England, especially Massachusetts. It's one of several areas the Sandhill Cranes are recolonizing after losing most of their historic wetland habitats east of the Mississippi. While many species are struggling, it's important to celebrate the successes, too. For Bird Note, I'm Michael Stein. This episode is sponsored in memoriam of Alice Ashbaugh, a lifelong bird watcher and amateur ornithologist.
Hello, everyone. This is Bill Ruggiero. I would like you to join me for another exciting edition of Talking Topics. Join us on Super Sunday, that's February 11th, from 6 p.m. to 6.30 p.m., where my guest will be Paul Buchiku, who has a show called Music to Your Ears. And it should be a ex- very exciting show. So join us then. Talking Topics is heard the second Sunday of every month exclusively on your favorite radio reading service, Audio Journal. Oh, yeah. Bye.